My morning at the Florida State Fair was off to a bad start. We got there early, right when it opened at 10, and quickly made our way through the expo hall in order to grab ourselves some of that precious fair food. Fair food is, of course, a dangerous commodity. It extends beyond your limit of what is acceptable to put into your body, yet nothing has ever been quite so tantalizing or delicious as the bizarre concoctions waiting for you at the fair. I have such incredible memories of fair food. There used to be a shop that would sell you a solid block of vanilla ice cream between two freshly made Belgian waffles. Another would serve you mashed potatoes with roast beef and gravy on top. They called it a roast beef sundae, as it was composed to look like a savory version of an ice cream sundae. I could only dream of returning to the fair and inhaling more terrifying, incredible food. I made a mistake, however. I went for a corn dog. The cornmeal outer shell was warm and crisp, but the hot dog within was ice cold. It was horrifying, and not in the good fun way that fair food is supposed to be. I immediately pivoted to a chicken gyro and went on to, over the course of the day, eat peanut butter fudge, loaded Idaho potato ribbons, fried cheese curds, strawberry shortcake, and of course, three incredible donuts from a food truck operated by Peachy's Baking Company and I could have had about 10 more of those donuts. They were unreasonably good. But by the time I was done, I couldn't walk much longer. I had to cancel my plans for that evening, and I shortly fell asleep in the back seat on the car ride home, just like in the good old days. In the six hours my family and I spent there, we enjoyed nearly all of the events available at the State Fair. If you've never been, it's a massive spot of land that essentially moves in a circle, with the Expo Hall at one corner, the Midway at another, a huge patch of dining options scattered around, and a variety of animal expos. There was an entire building dedicated to the chicken and bunny competitions. There was the Agricultural Hall of Fame, which featured dozens of exhibits on farming. There was the Craft Expo, where folks would sell their handmade home decor, clothing, jewelry, candles, scents, and more. There's a museum with old Florida forestry vehicles, including trucks and firefighting helicopters. There's an old steam train engine set on old train tracks. There are performances littered throughout the fair, including one where hundreds watched in horror as three men bounded around a concrete lot on massive pogo sticks. There's a song from an old Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, the eponymous song of said musical called State Fair. It proclaims that our state fair is a great state fair, and every time I visit ours, I find this to be true. And one feature that makes our fair so great, not just the amazing work done by local farmers and horticulturalists who support this fair, not just the local artists that make it so vibrant, but the fascinating museum tucked in a corner of the fair, one of the most famous spots of reliable shade in the whole event. It's called Cracker Country, and nestled under live oaks in necessary and needed shade lies a dozen historic wooden buildings booths selling country snacks, bands performing traditional folk and bluegrass, and dozens of historical docents eager to guide you through life in historic Cracker Country. It's a living museum made up of buildings that were picked up and brought to this exact spot a little over 40 years ago. How they got here and how the fair evolved to this moment is a feat of true Floridian ingenuity. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Cracker Country and the Fair. How an unlucky governor's legacy lives on through a unique little museum in a unique little space.
Now, the fair itself has a pretty incredible history. It's been in its current location since 1977, after it moved away from its previous downtown location where it had been held off and on for the previous 70 years. It has a really interesting origin, and our pal Gabrielle Khaleesi, a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times and my friend, wrote an article about it just a few weeks ago. So, of course, I gave her a call. We had that conversation on the phone where, like, you had mentioned that you were going to the fair, and I was kind of shocked because I'm like, why are you coming all the way to Tampa for the fair? And then I, that was the, really the first time that I realized that, like, this is the official Florida State Fair, even though that's in the name. And I'm like, well, why? So I, I called up um, one of my favorite local historians, Andy Hughes, over at USF Special Collections um, and talked to him as well as this woman who is studying uh, the history of the fair for the Florida State Fair. What, yes. what did you find? I mean, where did it begin? Okay, so it all goes back to 1904, which is, if you think about it, kind of wild. Uh, that's the same year that Gasparilla started, but it is not that wild because they were created together in tandem um, and actually were held in tandem for several decades, many years. Now, maybe you've never heard of Gasparilla, and if that's the case, it's essentially the biggest event of the year in Tampa. Think of it like a Floridian Mardi Gras. People dress up as pirates and drink a lot and eat a lot. There's a massive parade with a pirate ship that rolls down Main Street. It's a whole thing. It is a huge, huge deal in Tampa, and Gabrielle discovered that Gasparilla and the State Fair were created to be sort of partners, hand-in-hand -hand events. The Gasparilla Parade ended at the State Fair. So basically, Henry Plant, our boy, um, railroad mogul, developer, all that, he has his Tampa Bay Hotel, which is present-day University of Tampa's Plant Hall. Right. If Beautiful. you ever go to downtown Tampa and you see the minarets, that's what that is. Pretty much one of my favorite places in Florida. It's, it's so amazing over there. Right? And so he has this hotel, and it's right on the Hillsborough River, and he's trying to promote it. And so at the time, he was hosting these great little events and stuff for the guests um and then after he died the hotel was not doing so hot and the city of tampa actually invested in it and they were trying to save it and and then they were like this is losing money and so it, in an effort from the city to sort of recover what they had invested they teamed up with the hotel manager and they were like hey let's host a fair and this will be like a big event and so the first fair was actually called the South Florida Fair, and it was the winter of 1904, and they were like, we'll do it at the same time as Gasparilla, and we'll bring people downtown, and it'll be great. So it's sort of like this bundled, festive thing. The fair officially became the Florida State Fair in 1915, only to be temporarily suspended in 1918 for World War I and for the years that America was involved in World War II. It picked up regularly again in this space for another 30 years afterwards. The fair obviously holds its origins in the World's Fair, primarily the 1893 Chicago Expo, which was a resounding historical success. Across the country and in Florida as well, the fair has always been an opportunity for people to show off their talent, their skills, and their harvest. That was really where, like, the, the midway that we know today that had like dancers and rides and games sort of 
takes place. And something that like kind of really blew my mind, I, I mean, it's kind of obvious if you think about it, but I thought it was so interesting how Andy was like, this is for many people when they went and saw like the lit up midway, this is the first time that they've seen like an electric light bulb or the first time that they could try Coca-Cola or have barbecue or, you know, taste these things that they never had before. And it wasn't all so pretty. Our sensibilities in that era were far less kind, leaning more into the cruel otherization that circuses used during that time. We still have many circus hubs in the state, in Sarasota and Gibsonton, and that was even more so then. There would be performers, quote-unquote freak shows, and even live animals like elephants parading through the streets of Tampa. But then as we start to get into like the 50s, that's really when Florida uh, starts to focus more on agriculture. And so you'll see photos of like the animals or you'll see like, you know, samples of different foods like Ready Whip or um, Tampa really is known for cigars. And so I thought it was really fascinating to see these photos of women wearing cigar dresses, like dresses made out of a bunch of little cigars. Or there's one where there's like a fake tank and it's just covered in cigars and like all sorts of pageantry just sort of like promote these um you know industries that it was like this annual thing for them where you could go and kind of be like well this is what we're making or this is what we're producing then in 1975 the florida state fair authority was created to manage the existence of the fair things began to change and the development of tampa had a say in that the route of Gasparilla actually changed, I believe this was in the 70s, um, when the, the Selman Expressway was built. And then, you know, as the roads sort of changed and, like, it was no longer possible for, like, that big pirate ship leading the invasion to, like, fit in certain places, they, like, altered the route. And then, you know, the, we have, like, the Florida State Fairgrounds, which were added in the 70s, and that's when the fair uh, started going in that part of Tampa and was no longer held downtown but for up until the 70s the Florida State Fair was held like present-day University of Tampa campus. As the fair was developing its new grounds the son of a former governor fell in love with the back corner hammock on the property and began to see a vision of what the fairgrounds could be. He was the son of Governor Doyle E. Carlton. You've heard his name before, twice already this season. He tried in vain to keep greyhound racing illegal in Florida, and then he had to pick a new poet laureate in 1933 when Franklin N. Woods suddenly died after only serving in his job for three years. Doyle is all over Florida's history. In my research, I don't think there is a governor who faced more bad luck in his single-term tenure than Doyle L.M. Carlton, and some of that bad luck, honestly, was self-imposed. His brief administration faced national pressure as the Great Depression flooded the country with economic strife that would take another decade to bounce back from. Florida faced much of that pain because just as Doyle E. Carlton became the governor, the Florida land boom that had brought the state to the forefront suddenly crashed. What else but a hurricane hit the state in 1928 and decimated developing land and large swaths of agriculture. The eventual crash in the state was on the horizon for a few years, but at the same time as Carlton was elected, everything fell apart. The national economy tanked, and the state's land valuation fell through the floor. Within a year, we had the lowest employment in the South. A Republican named Herbert Hoover had just been elected president, and the Southern Democratic Party was just a few decades from irrevocably splitting. Doyle E. Carlton barely had a chance to survive. 
Carlton was a lawyer, born in the small town of Waushula, the county seat of Hardy County, a rectangular little county due east from Tampa Bay. Carlton and his son Doyle E. Carlton Jr. had a long impact on the small agricultural town which primarily produced citrus and watermelon. Side note, the town of Waushula has been called the cucumber capital of the world. There is no evidence that I have found that supports this claim. The name Waushula itself, according to state historians, quote, derived from the Miccosukee Indian word Wataluhaki, meaning call of the sandhill crane. When Carlton was a child, there was no high school, so he made his way to Stetson to receive a higher education. He eventually became a lawyer and passed the Florida Bar in 1912. He was a state attorney, eventually began serving as a state senator in 1916, and won the governorship in 1928. What made it all worse for Doyle was not just that he was facing one of the largest economic downturns in American history, he was also flatly denying that it was about to get worse. His fiscally conservative background, along with his party's support, led him to believe that this was a natural valley in the economy. He believed a peak was soon to follow. He would soon be proven wrong, as obviously things got worse, but Doyle kept up appearances. He found something new to place the blame on. There was an infestation of Mediterranean fruit flies that swarmed Florida's citrus fields in 1929. The bug would infect the fruit, cause them to drop early, and would essentially destroy the innards of the orange. I won't get into the more gruesome details. Needless to say, the already struggling economy couldn't handle a situation like this, so the need to prevent the spread reached drastic levels. Members of the National Guard set up checkpoints along Florida's highways and would stop trucks filled with fruit and inspect the product for any sign of infection. Florida's fruit was banned from entering 18 different states during this time, and about 67% of the trees and citrus fields were affected by eradication efforts. The Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services says that by the time the bug was stopped in 1930, the state had lost about $7.5 million. Doyle blamed the bugs for the increasingly troublesome conditions in Florida, along with placing the blame on, quote, anarchists, communists, and other dissenters, end quote. In his short tenure, Doyle angered his legislature, refused to take simple actions to boost the economy, and worst of all, it is speculated that he helped get friends of his out of prosecution for financial crimes. Floridians saw Doyle as unfit, and by the time 1932 rolled around, it was time for a change. An outsider from Brooklyn, David Schultz, was running as a New Deal Democrat for Florida's governor, supporting the very popular Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt was running for president at the time. Schultz and Roosevelt were elected at the same time, and old bad luck Doyle E. Carlton, who didn't even win his primary, moved back to Tampa, where he had worked for years and continued to practice law. He tried once again to be a politician running for U.S. Senate in 1936, but he failed. He lived in Tampa until he was 87 years old when he passed on October 25, 1972. Six years later, his son, Doyle E. Carlton Jr., opened a living museum at the eastern edge of Tampa called Cracker Country. In the mid-1970s, when the state bought this property where the fair is currently located, and they were getting ready to move from uh, move the fair from downtown at Plant Field out here to this location, the legend has it that uh, Mildred and Doyle Jr. were walking through this beautiful little four-acre hammock that Cracker Country is now on, and thinking, gosh, we, 
this is such a beautiful little spot, we should do something really special with it. And that Mildred said to Doyle, wouldn't your granddaddy's house look great sitting right there under that oak tree? And that is precisely what they did. That's Cindy Horton, by the way. She's the museum director out here in Cracker Country. She's been working with museums for a number of years, but when she wound up in her current position, it felt like the fates had aligned. Uh, well, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, my, my whole career basically has been spent in, in zoos and museums. But I grew up in St. Petersburg, so um, this Tampa Bay area is really home for me. So uh, when I uh, learned of this position being open at Cracker Country, it just, you know, seemed kind of tailor-made <laughs> for me and for what I wanted to do. And, you know, when I came down here, I just absolutely fell in love with this place. Um, and I uh, just really couldn't be happier being part of this team. Cindy talks about falling in love with this space a lot, not just in her case, but in that of the volunteers and the visitors who arrive during the fair and the students who visit the museum on school trips. She says that those trips build a lasting relationship to the museum, and when they return again through the fair and bring their parents along, they have a sense of ownership over the space. When people pass by the gates of Cracker Country and the kids look up and see that sign and realize where they are and just squeal and grab their parents and drag them into Cracker Country and then the kids very proudly take their parents on a tour uh, of everything that they remembered from their field trip. So just knowing that we have that kind of impact on, on our, our, kid, our elementary school kids here is very, very heartwarming to me. The people working at Cracker Country seem to be overwhelmed with affection for not only the space they work in and the history they share, but in the impact they get to have upon those who pay it a visit. It is really a unique space. It's built to be a living museum, meaning you can witness a community as it historically existed as best as it can be recreated. This specific museum focuses on the era before modernization, around the mid-19th century, when white settlers made their way into Florida and started building homesteads out in the woods and prairies of our state. These cities would eventually become the urban hubs we have today, but before electricity and population became concerns, these crackers survived on the wilderness around them and the strength of their small communities. The people who founded this place were not crackers, but their ancestors were. Originally, it was founded by Doyle E. Carlton Jr. and his wife, Mildred Woodbury. They were both lifelong Florida residents with family history that dates back to the mid-19th century, the Cracker era. Back then, in 1842, as the Second Seminole War was being forcefully ended by the American military, the federal government passed the Florida Armed Occupation Act. This provided opportunity for white settlers to take tracts of land up to about 160 acres and settle their families there. It was a way for the Americans to start taking the land away that they had agreed to give to the Seminoles 20 years earlier in the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. One such settler was Alderman Carlton, the great-grandfather of Governor Carlton. The Carlton home that now resides in Cracker Country was built in their hometown of Waushula back in 1885. It was actually the exact building where Governor Carlton was born. It stands in the middle of Cracker Country, an incredible antique of its era. It was one of a handful of historic buildings that were transported here. You know, the, moving historic buildings is so complex, and that's very interesting to me. Um, a couple of the build, big buildings, like the depot, of course, 
the Carlton House, as you mentioned, um, had to be moved in sections. Like they had to be, I believe the Carlton House was moved in in three sections. Um, and some were so fragile that they, you know, practically came in a board at a time. There are some pictures of those built up, most of the buildings on their original foundations. And if you can see, you know, the rainy building was leaning <laughs> picture so how that thing ever got here you know is kind of a miracle um and so it's really you know it's it's really a kind of a puzzle when you're trying to put an old building back together um and i you know i i've seen pictures of you know like the depot going down the highway and things and uh you know i would think it would be almost impossible today 40 years later with all of our with the power lines and everything that we have and the increased traffic how much harder it would be today to uh, to assemble uh, a group of buildings from around the state like this. They actually did have to decable much of the roadways in Florida. The Department of Transportation traveled with the old buildings and lifted telephone and power lines so the buildings could pass under without any trouble. It was a true feat of engineering, and with all of the buildings coming from so many different areas of the state, it's a wonder they were all in the incredible condition they all reside in to this day. One house at the center of the museum was built in 1894. There's the Terry Shop, which functions as the general store. That was built by the family of former Governor Lawton Childs. There's a post office where kids can pick up paper, run next door to the print shop and create a postcard, and return to the post office to have it sent. The old train station that sat in Okahumka in Lake County has been picked up and moved to this exact location. There's a building called Governor's Inn, which used to be a store in Hardy County, built in 1912. Now it hosts portraits of all of Florida's governors in chronological order. There is a functioning garden at the back of the property. Artists and craftsfolk riddle the museum. A man in a paisley shirt and matching pants does blacksmithing. A group of people make candles. Little hand-carved wooden pigs sit in a herd under a tree. Right through the front gates is an old church. It was originally built in a tiny town along the Florida-Georgia border called Gretna. Gretna is a predominantly black city, and this old heart pine structure served as their church for many, many years after it was built around the turn of the century. In 1979, it was carefully taken to this museum. When I visited a few weeks ago, trickling from the front door of that church, wafting across the fallen oak leaves, there was a warm collection of voices that struck my ear. A kind woman stood at the door in period clothing, handing out hymnals, and she guided us into pews. It was packed to the door, and standing at the front of the church, a group of people sang. Cindy Horton tells me this is one of the community groups that gathers to sing for visitors during the fair. Along with folks like them, the artisans at the booths and the musicians, there are a great number of historical docents. Uh, like I said, we have 125 museum docents, and uh, these people all have such big lives. <laughs> They're all very interesting. They have a lot of diverse talent. Um, you know, we have people who are, are weavers and spinners, um, uh, wood carvers, leather artists, all, all kinds of skills that really come to play that we take advantage of around Cracker Country, and it's, it is something that brings the museum to life. Um, you know, we could, we could stand there and tell someone that, you know, people used to uh, knit and crochet and make all their clothes and build all their own quilts and things like that. 
or we can just have someone in there actually demonstrating that and you know the picture is worth a thousand words and I think that that makes the experience all that more uh, interactive as well as helping people to really picture how the lives of Floridians in the late 19th century would have been. And that shows. In the massive building where Governor Carlton was born, there are folks just sitting, living. Some people sit in the kitchen with prepared food. Some people sit on the porch. There's a woman who was knitting in a side room that totally floored me. She's just doing her thing. There's a teacher in the schoolhouse, a postman in the post office, clerks in the general store. For all intents and purposes, Cracker Country does everything that it can to put the living in living museum. If the State Fair itself is meant to be a celebration of the craftspeople and farmers from across the state, Cracker Country is a perfect microcosm of that very same idea. Its origins are deeply connected to a family whose history spans a century and a half of Floridian history. By the way, the Carlton family, Cindy tells me, are still involved with the ranching industry, the fair, and Cracker Country. And with the buildings collected to this location from across the state and from different time periods, and with all of the docents gathered from different backgrounds and personal histories, Cracker Country becomes a blend of Florida's varied history to tell one specific story. The story of the white settler is obviously not the only story in our collected narrative, but here, in the shaded oaks in the back corner of the beautiful, fabulous state fair, a whole lot of Floridians from all over the state put in a whole lot of work to bring this story to life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a feeling you would like my episodes from last year about the failed theme park called Marco Polo Park. Or if you are interested in more gubernatorial drama, I would recommend the episode from last year about the election of 1966. If you did enjoy this episode or the ones I just recommended, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Cindy Horton. You can read more about the State Fair below. There are other events throughout the year that you can get involved in at Cracker Country. Well, uh, this spring we're concentrating mostly on our school programs. They start up in about three weeks. Um, for any homeschool listeners, we have a homeschool day coming up on March the 20th. Um, and then uh, this fall we'll have uh, several public events coming up, including our Tall Tales of Old Florida in October and our very, very popular Christmas in the Country event in December. Some thanks are also due to my friend Gabrielle Khaleesi. You can check out her article about the State Fair in the description below, along with some links to additional reading about Doyle E. Carlton and Cracker Country itself. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram 
Her last name, Nix, is spelt N-I-X. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, golf and cranes and community. I'll see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please, drink more water. <laughs>